Now, in our last message, we introduced the idea that we, before we're saved many times, sometimes after we're saved, develop sinful habit patterns. Patterns that uh, even after we're saved or even after we uh, understand and appropriate the filling of the Holy Spirit, even after we have matured to some degree in our Christian life, we nevertheless continue to respond to the pull and the, and the drive of our sinful nature to accomplish those things that have become habit to us. Now, I'm not primarily talking about the kind of thing that you willfully and deliberately do. I want you to understand that um, some of these things, some of you, may just willfully do them. Uh, you're faced with a choice, you think about it, you contemplate, and you think, ah, why not? I'll go ahead. All right, now that's a different thing. And uh, that ought to be dealt with too, and we'll be touching on that, I suppose, from time to time. But I, I want you to understand what's going through my frontal lobe tonight. Uh, the, the concept and the idea that there are things in our lives that we find ourselves doing and afterwards say, oh no, not again. I did that last week, and I told the Lord I'd never do it again, and here I've done it again. Uh, you, you do these things habitually. You do them subconsciously. You do them unconsciously. Uh, they're, they're something that is so ingrained into our very being uh, that, uh, that we have to deliberately put them off. We have to deliberately pull ourselves short and say, wait a minute, not that. I know that's wrong. I will not do that and you back off from it. Now there are times when you're consciously thinking that you do that, but there are other times where you're just going along through the day and that old habit grabs you and before you think, you find yourself falling once again. And the reason is because we do build patterns into our life. If you, if you could think of them this way, they're, they're sort of like a dip in the road. You're going along very smoothly and then there's this dip. You go along smoothly and every time you drive that road, you hit the dip. Now, if you're thinking about something else, you're busy and so on and so forth, you just drive along and you hit that dip and jar yourself time and time and time again because that dip is just permanently there. And unless somebody fixes the dip, then we continue to bump the car. And... Uh, we don't even necessarily have to think about it. It just, boom, we hit it. And we think about it after we've done it. And, of course, think to ourselves, why didn't I remember that there's a dip in the road right there? But what we want to do is fill in the dip. And that's really what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians 4 when he started saying that you're to put off the old man with all of the wrong things the old man does habitually, and you're to put on the new man. And then in order to illustrate that, he says, don't lie anymore. Be one who tells the truth. And he goes on from there and tells us a number of things where you have to deliberately put aside one thing, replace it with another, fill in the dip. So that when you come to that place, you will, you will pass over that little uh, niche, that little catch, uh, that over and over again you have, have done and uh, it, will, 
it will give you real victory in that area. Have you ever had a ever had a, like a hangnail or a or a nail kind of sticking out a little bit? I know gals don't have these problems, but guys do, and uh, you keep catching that on things. You know what I mean? And until finally one day you say, "Wait a minute." This is stupid. I'm going to tear the whole nail off, and it's irritating every time I do it. And you know, all it takes is going to the cupboard, getting a nail clipper, and clip. Now it's taken care of. And I think there are a lot of things in the Christian life where it may not be quite that easy uh, using a spiritual nail clip. But uh, at least we can, we can face this kind of thing and become victorious. And that's really what we want to talk about uh, in this class during these days. Now, really... Uh, we, we're talking about individuals, but that pattern, that sinful pattern, even affected nations. Uh, the nation of Israel is an example. I'm sure you're familiar with the, the, the fact that the key verse in the book of Judges is, uh, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Um, and there was a period of time where people thought they could get away with sin and found out they couldn't. And the book of Judges is a book of cycles. And uh, it really can illustrate your spiritual life uh, because, uh, first of all, there, there was sin. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And uh, then came uh, servitude as a result. The people were taken captive by the surrounding nations. And uh, while in servitude, after a period of bondage, there was supplication. That's when they cried out to the Lord. And said, Lord, you've got to deliver us from this thing. Well, then the Lord sent a deliverer. And uh, that they were the judges. Uh, men like Samson, men like Barak, um, even some women that God used to deliver the people of God. And so salvation came into the picture. And then after the people were saved and God released them from, uh, from their, their enemies and everything was going on fine and they had peace and prosperity, they began to think that they were independent of God again. And once again, there was sin. And go right back to that same period of uh, that same pattern over and over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And we find that in our lives. Nehemiah saw that it happened to nations this way. In the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, uh, you have the, the history of the nation of Israel in capsule form. You also have it in Psalm 106, Psalm 78, and some other places. But here in Nehemiah 9, there's this pattern that develops. Because of sin, there was slavery. God gave them discipline to teach people how much they needed him, how much they were dependent on him. And so in the midst of their slavery, there would be repentance and the people would humble themselves before God. And then there would be deliverance. And then there would be peace and rest and the people would become complacent again and they'd go back into sin. That's Nehemiah 9. Now, as I say, it follows in nations, but it's particularly important in our lives. And any time we begin to, to cruise, begin to float, begin to do things just our own way, every man doing that which is right in his own eyes, then uh, there's going to be problems. You can be sure of that. And uh, so we want to turn to First Peter chapter 1 just as one more introductory word, and then we want to get into the first of these habits that we want to talk about. First and perhaps the most important of all of the habits of life. First uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, we didn't give you this verse last week, but it's a good one. 
because it sets up the kind of contrast that we want to have in this series. First of all, it says in verse 13, Therefore gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, now notice what it says, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. You as a believer in Jesus Christ are not to imitate the unbelievers. Do you understand this principle? That anything done in the energy and power of the flesh is an imitation of the believer, of the unbeliever. Um, don't have time tonight, okay? But a good little word study is in Romans chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be studying that on Sunday morning uh, when you have grandchildren. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, there's a terrific word study because there are two words there. There is the word transformed and the word conformed. And those two words mean almost exactly the same thing with a very important difference. The word conformed means to show on the outside that which is not true of your inner nature. Be not conformed to this world. Don't show on the outside. It was a word that was used in Greek theater to speak of one who stood behind a mask. So you couldn't, you see, they had full body masks. They didn't have little masks on their face. They had a full body. They would stand, they, they would have, instead of costuming, uh, they would have a, a full bodied mask that they would carry in front of them. And uh, be like some of the Indian masks you've seen from Africa and uh, places like that. And um, the uh, um, uh, pagan people often use the same kind of a mask. It would be a mask that would disguise the person. Uh, and then his voice would be behind that mask. But it would actually uh, be some horrible creature, or, uh, uh, some god or something like that. And uh, that word was used to... Uh, to describe it. Also the word hypocrisis, the word for hypocrisy, was the same basic idea of being behind a mask. But the word that we're talking about in, in Romans 12 was that which was, was covering over the real you. Now the point is that as a believer in Christ, the real you is Christ living in you. That's your new nature. Alright? And God wants that to be seen. So the, the, the first word, conformed, means to, uh, to, to show on the outside that which is not true of your inner nature. The same word was translated transformed when it was talking about Satan transforming himself into an angel of light, masquerading as an angel of light. All right? The other word is the word that is translated in the Gospels, transfigured. And what's the meaning of that word? The meaning of that word is to show on the outside that which is true of your inner nature. The de definition is exactly the same, except one's negative and the other's positive. That's a quite, quite a difference, isn't it? Be not conformed to this world. Don't pretend like an unbeliever. Don't pretend you are an unbeliever. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Show that you are a believer. And the word was transla translated transfigured when it spoke of Christ on that Mount of Transfiguration. Remember what happened? Remember what the Christmas carol says? Veiled in flesh 
the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Christ was the glowing, shining, Shekinah glory of God because he was God. But he didn't show that. When people saw him, they saw him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There was nothing in him that we should desire him. He did not have a halo. Do you know where halos came from? Halos were pagan symbols. Don't ever, if you paint a picture of Christ, don't ever put a halo on his head. It's a pagan symbol. Christ did not have a halo. He did not go around with, an, with a shine all over him. No, no. He could have. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, he did. But he showed on the outside that which was true of his inner nature. And he glowed so much that the disciples trembled and feared. All right? Now, what God wants us to do is show on the outside our true inner nature. That is, our, the, the spiritual nature that's been planted there by a work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're supposed to show. Now, the, the same idea is being taught here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. You don't act like an unbeliever anymore. How do you act then? Look at it. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in church. Is that what it says? In all. Boy, that's a big word, isn't it? In all of your behavior. You see, we've got a philosophy going around today that it's all right to be a little bit holy, but don't be too holy. It's all right to be a little godlike, but don't be too godlike. It's all right to be a little Christian, but don't be too much of a Christian. Don't get pious on us. You know, it's an amazing thing whenever you start talking about holiness, whenever you talk about godliness, you always have someone who cries, legalistic! person that says that doesn't understand the meaning of the word legalistic. He doesn't understand the meaning of holiness or righteousness or godliness. So I'll tell you something. It is God's goal, whether it's yours or not, it's God's goal to make you just as holy and pure and undefiled as Jesus Christ himself. That's his goal. And when he takes you to glory, he'll accomplish it. But he's not satisfied to wait. He wants to do it now. But what is required is that you come to the place in your spiritual life where you're willing to cooperate with God in that. And I want to tell you something. You, you would be out of place. You would be out of place a hundred years ago with a group of similar Christians. You know why? Because they were much more holy than we are. Here we are in the day of rapid transit and rapid information and the transfer of, of information so fast from, from the computer to the page. And it's an amazing thing. We have more material on the subject of holiness available to us today than any time in the history of mankind. In fact, we have more available today than all of the history of mankind accumulated. 
More material on holiness. More material on godliness. More material on the spiritual life. More material on the, the Christian home and this and that and the other thing. We've got more than, than the rest of history all put together. And yet we've got less holiness. Less separation. Less spiritual life. Less godliness. What's wrong? Well, the problem is not the amount of material we have on the subject. The problem is the individual human will. And we live in a conformist society. I want to tell you something. In this text, in Romans 12, and over and over again in other places in Scripture, it tells us that we are to dare to be different. And if we're not, shame on us. We ought to shine like a light in a dark place. When we walk into the room, people should immediately, immediately recognize there's a person that's different because you walk with God. John Hyde, praying Hyde, his father, Smith Hyde, Presbyterian minister in the East, or in the Midwest actually, it's East to us, it was said of him, no biographies were ever written about him. He was just mentioned in some of the biographies of Praying Hyde. He was mentioned in some mission biographies because of his heart for missions. But no biography was ever written about him. He never became famous, never became well known. But everywhere he's mentioned, the one thing that people remember about Smith Hyde was this. His ministry was stamped with a godly life is yours you see because we are not to be conformed to the way we were we're not to hit that dip but rather we're to be holy in all our behavior because it is written you shall be holy for I am holy well you get the point then don't you see where we're going now let's talk tonight about the first of these I hope I left enough time so we can talk about it and finish up because I'd like to take one each week if we can but I'm not going to rush if we get bogged down we'll just take an extra week alright at the root of all sin is pride at the root of all sin no matter what you do no matter what sinful act you commit at the root of all of it is pride. Pride, for a brief definition, is an independent spirit. It's an attempt to do things on your own. It's the basic sin of the universe. Both Augustine and Thomas Aquinas said that pride is the very essence of sin. You look at the New Testament, you look at the Old Testament, and you realize it's true. It caused the fall of Satan. It caused the fall of man. It's the heart of every failure in the Bible. In fact, it's the heart of every failure of every Christian or every unbeliever in history. There was an old Anison ad on TV. Some of you real old people remember. I know it was in black and white, so you see how long ago it was. An elderly mother comes into the kitchen 
cheerfully tries to help with the dishes, but the married daughter has an Anison headache. They don't have Anison headaches anymore, they're Excedrin headaches now. It was the same thing, except a different brand. And uh, she snaps at her mother and says, how many of you know? Sure, good ad, isn't it? Please, mother, I'd rather do it myself. Now, her problem there was pride. Not the headache, but pride. And you see, it's that attitude that prevails even today because what people say when God stands ready, willing, and able to help us, we snap at him and say, please God, I'd rather do it myself. That is pride. Pride is saying, I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I can make it on my own. And I think you can understand that pride exhibits itself both horizontally and vertically. First and foremost, it's a sin against God. And on the vertical level, you say to God, I don't need you. I can make it on my own. Now, turn with me to Isaiah 14. We'll see how pride got involved between one of God's creatures and God himself, the creature and the creator, if you please. Isaiah 14, beginning at verse 12, How have you fallen from heaven? O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. It's a very interesting uh, literary form here. Uh, the... Um, the writer, Isaiah, is talking about the king of Tyre. And all of the sudden, he goes into this soliloquy uh, on the fall of Satan because he sees similarities between the king of Tyre and, and Satan. And it gives us a picture through divine inspiration of what happened prehistory, before the fall, before the fall of man, before the creation of man, before the creation of the world. Sometime in eternity past, this incident took place. And the transfer between the king of Tyre and Satan is criticized by some as being uh, reading into something, uh, reading into it something that's not there. Anybody says that is showing their ignorance. Because this is a very common form in, um, in, in ancient literature, particularly in Semitic literature. And therefore... Uh, there's nothing wrong with being talking with talking about someone else and then obviously jumping to something that illustrates it that's much higher. And so the form here is, is very, very, uh, very, very precise, and uh, you don't want to misunderstand that. In any event, notice what it, what it says about it. He's the star of the morning, the bright one, and uh, he's described else, uh, like that elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, you've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. That's the fall of Satan. And here's why. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I don't need God. I can be independent of God. I can be the God of the universe. 
Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to Sheol and so on. The judgment of Satan was sure because of his pride. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about the pride of Satan. And this is what it's referring to when it's talking about the pride of Satan. From that time on, from the time of the fall of Satan, Satan began to perpetuate, you've heard me say it before, the lie. The lie that will be the rule of order during the tribulation period, right to the end, until when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth to rule and reign, deliver his people. And there will be a host of people that will believe the lie. They will believe that they can live independent of God. Now, there's a lot of people that speculate about what's going to happen when the rapture takes place. You know, surely there's going to be a tremendous upheaval, isn't there? I mean, you know, all of these Christians are uh, going to disappear. And they're going to, some of them, be in important places. And the world has got to react with horror at such a thing. I mean, they're, when, a, when a child disappears, see how they, how they respond, you know, in the neighborhood. And just multiply that by millions of people. But guess what? The Bible does not indicate that kind of panic. It doesn't say it can't happen, but it does not indicate, and you would think the way the book of Revelation is written, that it would make clear if that kind of thing were going to take place. The first of the plagues that come in the tribulation period surely would be mass panic because everybody's disappeared, but that's not the way it is spelled out. Instead, the people buy the lie. And you know what the lie could be at that time? Not only can we be independent of God, but face it, folks, we're better off without those people. All those Christians have disappeared. We don't know what happened. Maybe a spaceship took them. But one thing is sure, we're better off without them. We don't need them. Because the lie not only includes the vertical, but also the horizontal, as we'll see in a moment. The lie is that man doesn't need man and doesn't need God. And therefore, it could be that that's the first thing that will be done, the first order of business. With all the world ready for war, at the beginning of the tribulation period, they're going to say our security is better without those people than with them here. In any event, the main idea, though, is that the lie is that man can live independent of God. Now, turn to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, you have the fall of man, verses 1 through 7. And I want you to keep this in mind now, that pride is the essence of sin. And that basically, Satan in pride is saying to Eve, you can make it independent of God. Eve, you and Adam were created by God. And uh, see what God has done? Every night he has to come and burp you. Wouldn't you like to grow out of that stage? Wouldn't you like to be beyond that? Wouldn't you like to be able to think things through for yourself? Let me tell you the basic difference between you and God. God knows there's evil. He knows about that. And you don't. Because God's never let you try it. But I'll tell you something. You want to really be free? You want to be independent? You want to be the rugged individualist and the self-made man? Simple. Break with God, and you'll discover that you will be like God. 
Now, just look at that with that in mind. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. God lied to you. Why? Because God wants to keep you in a box. He doesn't want you to think independently. Right? For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was delight to her eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they, they, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The fall of man. Why? Because of pride. Now, Daniel chapter 4 is another place. Daniel chapter 4. Here we have the fall of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 19, uh, Daniel, who is called Belshazzar, had been brought in, to, uh, brought in to, to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And um, the king responds by saying, this is in verse 19, middle of the verse, uh, do not let the dreamer's interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached the sky and was visible to the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and that which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. And in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of the heaven. Let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. And you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of the heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. He'd gotten too big for his royal britches. And uh, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. God is sovereign. And in that, it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. You've got a lesson to learn. You're going to learn a lesson. As soon as you learn that heaven rules, as soon as you learn that God is God and that you are not, then the kingdom is going to be restored. So don't worry about your kingdom. Don't worry about your sanity. You're going to be nuts for a while, but eventually you're going to get your sanity back and the kingdom is going to be intact. God has preserved that. So you don't have to worry about a thing. Just learn. Go to school. You're going to take a leave of absence to go to God's 
school of discipline. All right? Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. What harm would it do to short-circuit this thing? Now, so many times, you know, that's what God wants to do with you and me. He wants to short-circuit these things in our life. I think of Cain as an example. Cain was jealous of Abel, envious of Abel, because God had respected his sacrifice. And God appears so gently to Cain. He says, Cain, do right. You know what I want. I want a blood sacrifice. You willing to do a blood sacrifice? Case closed. No problem. Cain said, no way. I'm going to do what I want to do. So he did what he wanted to do. He killed Abel. And the rest of his life, he was a wanderer and a vagabond in the earth with a mark of Cain on him. Terrible, tragic circumstance. Well, here's Nebuchadnezzar in the same kind of a situation. He's got a choice.